a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. So this is the fourth lesson in the letter to the Hebrews. This is chapter four. We're doing verses one to 13, and this is entering God's rest. So let's go ahead and read this. We'll do it through the ESV. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we, who have believed, enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. So this section breaks into two basic parts. First of all, we see verses 1 to 10, entering God's rest, and then 11 to 13, the word is sharper. And this was this is kind of cool. We do a Bible study here at the house with the kids, well, as a family, you know. And this this was a section, not the full section, but just basically chapter 4, verse 12 is something that Gabby had picked up. And she was asking, actually just this, this last week, about it. I said, hey, we're going to go over this just for you, Gabby, just for you. We're going to go over this on, on this, this week's lesson, so go for it. So you never know. She might actually see this and be blushing right now. All right. So let's let's dig into this. Hebrews 4, 1 to 10, entering God's rest. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore, like always, what's it there for? Well, the therefore is just continuing the argument and the reasoning from chapter 2. There was exhortation and argument in, excuse me, in chapter 3. There was argument and exhortation going on as to, you know, why we should continue, right? Why it's important to continue into this. And so this is just because of that argument, here we go. Let's continue on in entering God's rest. Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So the still stands here, first of all, while, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. This is encouraging that the people haven't been like their ancestors, at least not yet, in going against God and him keeping them from the rest. And he says that the promise of entering his rest, it still stands. Like it's it's still there. They the their ancestors back in the wilderness didn't lose the possibility to enter God's rest for them for for everyone going forward. It wasn't like Adam and Eve when we had the original fall, right? When we had the original rebellion and we had that original fall, everyone then forward was born into sin. And we are all sinful by nature, right? We have that. And so it's just part of this. And so we were born into sin. We constantly go against God. The Bible tells us, you know, we just always search for the wrong thing. We always do the wrong thing. So we go against God and that's just becomes kind of a natural part of things because we're, we're born into sin. Well, this disobedience that they did did not produce a different kind of outpouring to where now, oh, no one can enter God's rest. No, no, no. The, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And better yet, it's a better rest. It is a full rest. It's not just getting into a promised land, just a, a, a small section of the earth. No, this is actually God's eternal rest and living eternally with him, which, which is interesting because if we think of the promised land, Israel, it is... God's area for his people, much like Eden began as his area for him to be with people, humanity, and all of creation, right? He wanted to be with the physical creation, and that's where he was doing it with Eden, and then asking people to spread out all over and take dominion over the rest of the earth and transform that into an earth-wide Eden, essentially. Well, he says, no, so I'm going to restart this. We're going to reboot it with my people. You know, oh, computer's not working. Restart, right? Refresh. And going to restart this and we're going to do it here in Israel with my people. I'm holding this section of people for my own. And that's where we're going to go with this. And so he starts this with Israel. Well, Israel, if you go through history time and time and time and time and time again, went against God, went against God, went against God. And, and he promised said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn my back on you forever. Right? So he let people take them over, let them have other things happen as essentially natural recourse for some of the actions that they did, right? They went against God, and so naturally things bad things happen. Well, God would then save them and bring them back. He would send deliverance and bring them back. All of these types and shadows of, of the Messiah coming forward and saving and, and doing this stuff, okay? And he's saying, now we have a better promise. We have a promise of eternal rest, a forever rest, a perfect rest, and that promise still stands. So therefore, it's it's good. We should go for this. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Now, this fear is not like a fear and trembling, right? This isn't like shock and awe campaign of I'm scared and terrified. This is a fear as in reverence, right? We should have reverence for God. We should have a holy fear and recognizing that he is infinitely greater than we are. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's really very human. I don't know how else to say that, really. That is a very human statement, and it's really nice to, to see and read because these are questions that I think we all have, especially if you start getting into some of the, some of the theological questions and, and thoughts of, okay, so 
is Calvinism right? Is it is it a, you know, God chooses us and there's nothing that we can do about it? Is Arminianism right? And do I get to choose? And, but then how do I know, right? How do I know that I'm in there? And we say, oh, well, you'll have the fruit of the spirit, right? You're going to have spiritual gifts and fruit of the spirit. And, and some would say, you know, you'd have some that's more of the maybe Pentecostal or spirit-led movements that would say, well, the, the gifts of the spirit are showing a sign of, of being baptized with the spirit. And so, okay, well, if I have the Holy Spirit, that's a seal that proves that we're in God's kingdom and that we're saved. But this is this is very, I, I hesitate to say comforting, but it really kind of is. At least to me, I find this very comforting. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We don't know. This just adds on to it that there are some grand mysteries about this. This is why we have different doctrines. This is why we have different theologies. It's because we have different beliefs. We get into this, and if we, again, go through history, not just not just Christian church history, but go back through Jewish history. They had certain thoughts and certain, certain processes. They believed certain things until they started going back to it and saying, should I have had a V8, right? Like, bam, uh, what? We got that way. Or, you know, Samsonite, I was way off, right? We just... There's so many thoughts that we're not completely sure of, but we do our best. We follow in faith, which is part of the reason why when we get to verse 12, verse 12 starts to make sense. Okay, it starts to really make sense. But that is a very human aspect of, I'm not God. He's The author here is basically saying, I'm not God. I'm not the one who sits on the throne and says, you get rest, you get rest, you get rest. You don't, right? That's not his position. He doesn't know. Like, so unless... In fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed. We don't want to feel like we have failed you. We don't want to feel like we're going to miss you in heaven, that we're going to miss you in eternity. So continue on with us so that hopefully you're still there. That's the hope. Let's continue on. Verse two For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This is such an interesting thing, because different cultures will take this verse to mean something very different. So let's discuss this for a moment. First of all, this is a continuation of the comparison of the Exodus to the spiritual revolution of Christianity, of Jesus, right? It's just accepting Jesus and moving forward. First of all, we see the good news, right? The good news came to us just as to them. Well, good news, that's that's the message, right? Good news, gospel literally means good news. For good news, the gospel came to us just as to them. It was different though. The message to, that went to them came to them from Moses versus came to us through Jesus. They were delivered. Some would use the, the term liberation. They were liberated from Egypt, from the grasps of Egypt. We are delivered from the grasps and the chains of sin, okay? Rest in the promised land versus eternal rest in the presence of God. Okay, so this is a comparison, and it's continuing that comparison thought of of the Exodus story and what happened with the ancestors of the Jewish ancestors in Exodus when they followed Moses, who was following God, to get them to the promised land, okay? This is a continuation to them. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Hold up. But the people ended up getting to the promised land. Yes. But that generation who managed, we should have just stayed. This wasn't as good. We should have, why did we do this? Moses, why did we let you talk us into this? 
Okay, you think maybe some of you think I'm blowing this out of proportion if you're not into this. You haven't haven't looked at this or it's been a while. Let's take a look. Exodus 14:12. Is it not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And the wilderness means desert. It's the land of the dead essentially, okay? Desert in their mindset. I know we went over this last week just really briefly. The desert, the wilderness, because wilderness in this context is desert. That is associated with death. It was a land believed to be filled with demons. It was the land associated with death. And so they left Egypt, quite frankly, the land known for life. It was a booming area and massive. They were a military power. They did a lot of great architecture. They were the first to create brain surgery. I mean, they, they, they had a lot of stuff going for them. We could have just stayed and served them in an area that was doing, quite frankly, pretty well, rather than die here in the land of death, in the land of demons, the land of all of this. We should, we should have just stayed. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 12, 9. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay. So it wasn't for that first generation. It, it originally should have been, but they complained enough and, and caused enough problems that God was like, no, you know what? This generation, you just don't get it. You're not going to get it. Next generation, then we'll go. And it's really kind of interesting when we get in through that. There's a lot of extra stories and things that happen through that. Hopefully we'll be able to study some of that later on. So this was not a benefit to that generation. Because, as he continues, because they were not united by faith or in faith, right? They were not united by or in faith with those who listened. Now, this right here, and this is why I'm saying this, this verse would mean something completely different depending on your cultural context. Here in America, we are very individualistic. We like things what we want. It is my truth. It is my this, me that, you this, you that get into an Eastern context, that is not the case. In fact, selfishness is like, it's, I, I, I hesitate to say rare, but it's very frowned upon. It, in Eastern context and Eastern, Eastern cultures, it is a we, it's a family, right? It's a family thing. So you got to be part of the family, honor the family, do these things, go on. So they were not united by faith. Now the Greek here is, and I'm going to butcher this, sukurnanamui. This means mixed together or united or to unite or being united. Now, mixed together literally means like if you are making a cake or something, you put the ingredients in and you mix it together. They become united. That egg is no longer just an egg. That flour is no longer flour. That sugar is no longer sugar. The cocoa is no longer cocoa. It You mix it together and it now all of a sudden becomes a cake batter. You can't separate that anymore. It is one unit, right? It is mixed together and fully unified in that. This, this actual Greek term is only found in one other spot in the entire scriptures. And in either the Septuagint, like the Old Testament that's turned to Greek, or the New Testament. It doesn't matter. This is word, this word is in here twice. That's it. Here in Hebrews 4.2, and also in 1 Corinthians 12.24. And that's where God is putting the body, the physical body, like someone's physical body, together. It is that unified, united as a single solid body. And not, not a metaphorical, the body of, of God, like the body of Christ. As when we say we're the body of Christ, no, the physical human body is put together and held together and united as one solid piece and entity. That's it. When the author here says they were not united, they were not fully bonded, they did not come together with completely 
those who listened. Now, the those who listened is really kind of interesting. And some some argue and say this might be a bad translation that had happened in the Septuagint, and so it got taken weird. I don't necessarily think that's that's the case. I think this is just something that we're we're putting way too much thought and effort into because it can be confusing. Who 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 listened? Are we talking about Moses? Moses who listened because he heard God and he followed, but Moses ended up not going either because of that generation. Or or was it the next generation? The younger generation that grew up in with this and said, "Wait a minute, we heard the stories. We saw this stuff. We know. And we're we're going to the promised land. We're still young. We still want to get there. We're we're okay. We'll wait." right? We're, let's do this. Let's go. Let's go. No, we want this. We, we barely remember Egypt and you guys are telling us it was okay, but the, but we know we were slaves and it was that bad and horrible. And you guys, people died all the time. They were starving. Like, let's continue on. So potentially, and I, I think that's just makes the most logical sense to those who are listened to was the next generations, the ones who got to go. I think that's pretty plain, plain and clear. So sometimes we take theology and try to try to figure things out to the nth degree and it makes it make less sense. So let's just take this for what it probably means. You weren't completely united and completely bonded with those who actually listened and trusted and believed that God was taking them as deliverance to the promised land. Who was shooting for that? The generations that got there. Hey, all right, that makes sense. Let's go. Three to five. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works are finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. This is interesting. We who have believed. The author indicates the necessity of action here, which, I mean, I guess it's, it's one of those, when you read that, you can go, that's kind of a stretch, isn't it? Is it though? If we who have believed, that demands action then demands a belief set, right? There is an action there. Belief is a choice. So if it's a choice, it's an action. But there is something that we have to do. We have to believe. So if we have to do that. So those of us who have believed, who have taken that step, that action, and we have entrusted our faith and our trust into God, for we who have believed enter that rest. We've entered that rest. Now, the author also here links God's eternal rest with, get this, the eternal rest that God offers by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus with God's Sabbath, his resting from the creation of the world when he finished on the seventh day. Let's take a look at Genesis 2.2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay, so so the author here is linking that eternal and perfect rest with God's rest, showing rest from finishing work. That's amazing. I think that's actually really kind of a cool thing to do. This is an indication that God had not only given rest then, but offers that rest to the next coming of Christ, all the way to the next coming of Christ, okay? So he gave it then, and it's offered all the way up to the second coming of Christ. But those in the wilderness who denied themselves of it, right? They denied themselves. It would be better if we just if we just stayed in Egypt. Let's go back. Let's you know what Moses has been up on that mountain a little too long. Let's collect all of the gold and make a golden calf and and worship this golden calf because that that's the cow. This baby cow is now going to be our our god. 
What? I mean, it's in there. Go look it up. It's in there. They denied themselves entrance into the promised land and into God's rest. God's rest started after he finished the work. Eternal rest is thus entered upon believing that Jesus' work of redemption on the cross is finished. That's kind of what's being pulled out here, okay? Six to eight. This section finishing entering God's rest. Six to eight. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Now, it, it in this verse, it is rest, right? He's continuing the conversation of what he's been talking about. It's rest. Therefore, it, the opportunity, the position, and the possibility to enter, for some to enter, it rest. Okay, this is rest. Continuing to rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. I hate to beat a dead horse, but we're just going to keep going down the same thing over and over again ad nauseum, right? Again, he points to a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, he's just saying, look, this happened so long after. David was so long after this, so long after this. And he's still saying today, if you hear his voice, the, re the rest is still open. The rest is still open, right? That's all he's saying. He's just continuing the same thought. He's repeating himself, okay? To make the point, clear. As clear as possible, he's repeating it again. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That makes sense. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's 9 and 10, right? So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. Now, this rest here in verse 9, because it, it, if you're looking at the ESV, ESV does actually say Sabbath rest. That's why we're reading it out of this, which is a great and beautiful translation for that, because it is actually a different word in the Greek, and the word itself means Sabbath. It is not just a regular rest. It's not like taking a break. It's not talking eternal rest. It's not. It is the Sabbath, the Sabbath break, the Sabbath rest. So that term does actually mean Sabbath rest because they want to clarify. It is a rest, yes, but it is the Sabbath rest. It is a better notation. If you look at certain things like the New King James, I believe just says rest. If you're looking at certain other translations, they might just say rest, which can get confusing in English because that's not what this means. This means it's not a continuation of the eternal rest. So then there remains a, an eternal rest for the people of God. No, no, no. This is, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why? Who's this being written to? This is being written to Hebrews, to Jewish people who accepted Jesus. They accepted him as the Messiah and moved forward with the faith into Christianity going, saying, the Messiah came. We're following the, the Messiah. That just, it's the natural transition. It just is. Jews today are waiting for a Messiah. The Messiah already came. And they're waiting for him. And when he comes, they're going to follow him. That's what they're saying, right? That was the whole point. Save us, deliver us. God send us the Messiah. And the Messiah came. And these Jews transitioned and followed Jesus. Naturally, that's the natural progression, okay?
Hey, Sippin' Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Be in the mindset of a Jew in this era. Second temple period. Looking back, they had, talking about the ancestors, oh, you disobey God a lot, and and your ancestors, some of the ancestors just, they didn't even make it to the promised land because they, they pushed too hard. And then they made it into the promised land. And then they made a temple and fell off the deep end. And that temple got destroyed. And there was an exile period. And they were held in captivity. And then they came back. We had Ezra and Nehemiah. If you remember, we did Nehemiah as a study. They came back and they rebuilt the city. And, they, and Ezra rebuilt the temple. And then they started doing these things again. And they came back. And you have the second temple period, which they're in. Shortly after this is written, and when I say shortly, I mean probably within five to ten years after this was written, the, the temple, second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. This was probably written early to mid-60s, I would say 62 to 64, so probably six to eight years before or after, after this, the temple is destroyed. They're sitting here saying, we don't want to not follow God because when we don't follow God and we don't do God's ways, bad things happen. The author's writing to Jewish people. So then there remains a Sabbath rest. What was one of the biggest things that, that God said? Like, no, 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 you have to do this. What is one of the key things that sets my people, God's saying, right? Key things that sets my people apart from the rest of the people. My people will rest on the seventh day as I have rested. There will be no work. And so the author here is pointing out to the Jews, look, this, this, is, this is continuing, right? There's still a, there's, there still remains the Sabbath rest. That hasn't gone away. Yeah, Jesus and his disciples gleaned, but Jesus was very clear about that. The Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. People got to eat. People are still suffering. You can heal people. Like you've taken the Sabbath to mean what it doesn't mean. You're not supposed to work. It is supposed to be a rest from the work, not a rest from being a blessing to humanity. If you're considering being a blessing to humanity work, that might be an issue and might be a, a place where you're breaking off from what God is saying and what God has been showing. We have to look at how Jesus did this. That's why we study this stuff. Jesus showed and taught it was good to be a blessing to the rest of humanity on the Sabbath. We stop from our regular work. And if you're ministering, and your life as a Christian to minister and bless others is being work to you, that's a problem. That's a sign of getting into burnout. And you need to like take a break, be a bump on the log, grow, rekindle that love between you and God and Jesus and get that, that, get that back, go, okay? But his point is that rest, that Sabbath rest, that's still here. 
Now, why is this making a point? Why is he making such a big point about this? This is when history becomes an important thing that we look at. The early church originally kind of started trying very, very early, like right afterwards. Tried on Saturday. It wasn't working. The Jews were in the temples, right? The Jews were in, in the synagogues teaching. You can't teach Christianity if the Jews don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. You can't go teach Jesus as the Messiah on their day with them. That's not, this didn't work. So they started practicing it on Sunday. The early church started practicing church on Sunday. Sometimes they would actually go into the synagogues in certain places. They would allow other places. They started doing it home churches. And it was small, small group home churches. And some of them were gigantic areas. And it just depended on where you were. Okay. But they would start doing this on Sunday. If you look at your calendar, Sunday is the start of the week, not the end of the week. That's day one, not day seven. That's that's not the Sabbath. And so some of these people are sitting here freaking out going, why? What is happening? This We can't, we're going against God. We're going against God. We're going against God. And part of the reason why here as, as Christians, if you talk to people, if you talk to pastors about following the Sabbath, it's it's the importance of doing a Sabbath. It's not the importance of what day the Sabbath is on. It doesn't matter what day of the week it's on. Take your break. Take your rest. Rest, recoup, and get your heart right with God. Take that time, learn, grow, study, pray, be in God's word, speak with God. Take that time to commune with God and to commune with your family. Rebuild your family and rebuild your relationship with God. Rebuild their relationship with God. That's it. There you go. You got your Sabbath. So this, this was his way of basically saying, look, that, that's not gone. That's not gone. Just because it's on a different day doesn't mean we're not practicing it. That Sabbath rest remains. It's still relevant to the church. Now, this is often viewed as a representation of resting with the Lord after finishing our earthly good works as well. It's possible. I mean, this is a very great theological write-up. And so that is definitely a possibility. But I don't, I don't know. To me, I, I really look at this. And when I look at this, I really read into it that this, this, that's what this is, is that this is, is really his way of saying, uh, no, that rest is still here. It's still relevant, but for kicks and giggles, since we're here and I, I didn't have it on my sheet, so I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, let's take a look. But when, when people do point out that this, this is, is, and can be a representation of resting with the Lord after we finish our earthly good works, all of it, like an eternal rest, like hitting that eternal rest. Let's take a look at that. And in Revelation 14, verse 13. So Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. That's that's kind of the linking that a lot of people will go when they when they use that kind of thought process on this. Let's continue on. The word is sharper. Let's do 11. Let us therefore, again, a therefore. These author here likes to do a lot of these therefores, right? So over everything we've been discussing, let us strive to enter that rest. Now, that rest, this rest here is not Sabbath rest. This is that eternal rest again. So he's gone back saying, look, yeah, the Sabbath rest is still a thing. It's still a thing. It's not gone. So still do the Sabbath rest. That's good. Well and good. Everything there is good. And God's work, like the good work, God rested after work. 
we rest after work. Maybe that also means we rest eternally after we do our earthly good works. Cool. But now, let us therefore strive to enter that good, eternal, perfect rest. The rest that is better than the promised land rest. That rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, strive for here really, like, let us strive to enter. The strive to enter is, is, a, is a call to perseverance. It's a call to perseverance. Persevere. Persevere in this. Salvation is by believing in Jesus and the work on the cross. Period. That's it. That, that is it. Our good works do not get us to heaven. End of story. Believing in Jesus and the work that he did gets us there. And that's it. We do good works because we are saved, because we are a part of God's family, and because we want to continue on in doing, we, we want to honor God. We want to honor the Father. We want to be a part of what the Father does, right? God loves, he blesses. He, we want to be a part of that. And so we do the good works because of salvation, not for salvation. There's a total difference. Externally, it, it might look like there's not much of a difference, but internally, there is a massive difference, okay? So persevere in the faith and in that faith. Maintaining action, because faith demands action, right? Jesus kept saying, abide in me, abide in me, right? Abide in Jesus continually so that no one may fall. Okay, disobedience here again, so no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. Disobedience, again, the author links this disobedience with a lack of faith. A lack of faith. That's all it is. He's, he's linking this. This disobedience pulls from a lack of faith. So let us maintain the faith in this, persevere in the faith to maintain it through this. 12 to 13, here comes the fun part. Gabby, if you're watching or listening, here you go. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Even as we're reading this, I'm sitting here going, how, how in depth do we want to go on this? Because there's so much here. There is so much here. Now, the word of God, the, the author of Hebrews, traditionally, so throughout the vast majority, and basically when you read it, you can blanket statement. Word of God in Hebrews, it means gospel, the gospel. Okay, holds fast to the gospel. In fact, if you read Paul later on, maybe not even later on, but if you read Paul throughout the scriptures, he'll actually tell you, hold fast to the gospel message that we taught you. Hold on to the gospel. If anyone teaches you something that is different than the gospel, run away. That is a fake gospel. Run back to the original true gospel. Hold strong to the original and true gospel. Hold to the gospel. Hold to the gospel. Hold to the gospel. It's about the good news. It's about the good news of Jesus. The things, the, the beginning of the Bible leads up to the need. It talks about the need, what era our past is, how our history comes, the history of the world, the history of the Jews, and the need for salvation and where that comes from and all of the signs that indicate that that salvation is real and true. The gospel is that good news. The deliverance has come. The Messiah, the Christ has come and is come and is here teaching the life of Jesus, teaching us how to live God's actual way and the meanings of these things because Let's be real. If we look at the gospel, there's a lot of correction. We just went through John, right? The gospel according to John. There's a lot of correction to where how we thought, how man thought they should live, to where how Jesus, God in human form, says, 
You, you missed it. You missed it. Quit trying to make this something that it's not. It's this. Okay, there's a lot of correction there. You have the gospel, then you get the epistles and all of the rest of it. That's really like more theology. Like how do we break this down into more practical use? Okay, the gospels are great. It's the good news. That is the foundation. If you are going to read one book in the Bible and that's it ever, read a gospel. Read a gospel. Come to Jesus. That's it. That is where it lies. That is the massive important part. I remember these commercials when I was a child. They used to drive me bonkers I to the point where I still think of them today. You get to heaven. How are you going to tell God that you didn't have time to read his book? What about the people who never had a book or never saw a book because they were poor? Hear God's word. Massive portion of history was spoken spoken word. They didn't read it. A lot of them didn't read it. Some did. Highly educated, still had books back in those days. Super highly educated people and people who had a lot of money, they could read some of that stuff, but the vast majority of them never had an opportunity to read. It's not about reading it. It's about believing and accepting Jesus. God's word is God's word, and it is good for us. And now that we have the opportunity, we have it. We have it. We should read it. I highly encourage you to. But if you're only ever going to read even one book, read a gospel. Read a gospel. That is the key message. That is the important message. The author of Hebrews, when he talks about the word of God, that really just means gospel. Read the good news. Read the good news. However, here it seems to hold more life than just the regular gospel message. Okay, the word of God, which seems to give the indication of this word being like the beginning of John. And the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word of God seems to be holding a much larger attribute set than just the good news. There's more to it here because the author here links and likens the gospel to God as the word was from the beginning, right? It's continuing today. What does he say the word is? He says the word is living. The word is active. The word is sharp or sharper than any double-edged sword, right? The word is sharp. It is discerning. It sees all of everything and everyone. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit. Hmm. Joints and marrow, okay? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature. What, what, what is creature? Why wouldn't he just say human? Maybe it's because it's not just humans. Maybe it's part of the spiritual realm as well. Did you think of that? God holds the spirit creatures accountable as well. He doesn't give them the same grace as he gives humans, which is, I think, part of the reason why we had some that weren't happy is because God showed favor to humans. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are, goes back to Genesis, naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. So it goes Genesis to Revelation. Naked and exposed. Why, why am I saying that goes back to Genesis? Oh, well, because it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Let's take a look, Genesis 3. 9 to 10. But the Lord calls, and this is technically after the fall. The sins already happened. They already ate of the fruit. 
The serpent already convinced them. They ate the fruit. Bam, here you go. Genesis 3, 9 to 10. But the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now read verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. God. God. No creature is hidden. All are naked and exposed. Backtrack. A little further. Now do 12. All, let's, let's actually read this backwards because it helps. Let's do 13 Let's do first part of 12 and then 13 and then the remainder of 12. For the word of God is living and active and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, meaning it, it's there and it divides from what the actual spirit, like your soul wants versus what your humanity, like your humanness wants. The joints and the marrow, it gets down into the bones. Like there is nothing in your physical creature self that is hidden. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, your most inward desires, things that you hide, things that you think no one else would know, the thoughts that you have when people walk by, the thoughts you have when somebody says something stupid, when you're angry and you want to hurt someone, but you don't. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And everyone, we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Why is that here? Why is that here? Well, think about it. What is verse 11? Persevere. Strive. Because of all of this, because this is greater. Strive to enter that perfect rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Oh, well, I'm not disobedient. I have faith. Look at me. I have faith. I'm a faithful guy. Faith, 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 faith. Well, by the way, the judge, the word of God, which we're being judged by, completely by, right? And then God likens that to God. Not only is God's word to man, what he like he gives us in accordance says, this is what you're held accountable to, but you give account to God, right? So they're linked together. God's word, God creates by his word. His word is there, right? Word is word, is there, okay? Give account to this. And you can't hide from it. You're naked, you're exposed. And the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through your soul and your spirit, the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You cannot hide who you truly are. You cannot hide what you truly believe and what you truly think from God. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. At least not anybody that matters. You can fool man. Good job. Yay. I mean, what does that do for you? Nothing. It might, you might get some short-term benefit out of it, but it really doesn't do anything for you. In the long term, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternity and this perfect rest that, that the author is talking about, these, it does nothing. It does nothing. So persevere. But be honest and 
have integrity. Be truthful about it. And if you're struggling, take that to God, right? Take that to God. I, I, I hate to tell you this, but God's a big God. And he can handle that. If you're not sure, you're not the first. He can handle that question. He can handle that conversation with you. All right, so what can we take away from this? A lot, but what can we take away? We broke this down into four basic things here. Belief is a choice and thus an action. This means that disbelief is also a choice and thus an action. Our decisions and actions have consequences, some natural, some eternal, and some hurt and or even help others. Our faith or lack of faith can impact those around us. Being in unity with fellow believers is powerful. It is very powerful. Being in unity with fellow disbelievers kept an entire generation from rest in the promised land. What could being in unity with God and with his people do for this generation today? If being in unity with disbelievers kept an entire generation from God's land, what could being in unity with him today do? I, I would say a lot. The gospel cuts to the heart of the matter and to the heart of all people. It's not all about acting a certain way on the outside. But it's also not about trying to keep faith completely internal either. God looks at our intent. He wants us to be faithful in trusting him. He knows we're not always going to be perfect about it. We're not him. He knows that we're not him. Why? Because he created us. He knows that. We're not perfect. But he wants us to believe in him, to trust him. And here's a word that doesn't people here in America don't like today. And to obey him. And finally, when we fall and we fail, look to God. Turn back to him. And continue walking in faith to the God of eternal and perfect rest. Father God, thank you so much for today and for this word. God, I ask that you, you touch us with it, that the sharpness of, of the word of God doesn't just, it doesn't just cut when it's searching, searching us, but that it cuts to allow for the word to soak into us that allows the word to get deeply inside of us. God, I ask that you help it seep in and help it stay, help it become part of who we are, part of us to our core, so that we can continue to walk with you and talk with you, so that we live life with you and for you, so that it's not about ourselves, but it's about you, and that we realize that being a blessing to others that's not against your rest. In fact, being a blessing to others can be a part of rest. That's not a work. That's a blessing. God, be with us. Help us throughout the weekend. Help us throughout this week. Encourage us and give us the strength to take this and to help this transform us so that we can go out and be better servants for you. Give us the courage and the strength to go and do what it is that you call us to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys. Hope you got something out of this and continue on. We'll see you guys next time as we continue on in the letter to the Hebrews. Have a great one. Bye-bye and God bless.